Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast where we aim to go behind the headlines and discuss the stories and trends shaping the world's most fascinating region. I'm Andrew People. While we often talk about issues such as the future of North Korea in terms of the broad geopolitical rivalry between the US and China, less discussed is how the issue plays out in South Korea itself. It's the country that has technically remained at war with its northern neighbour since the 1950s, and its interest in the matter is pretty existential. Well, South Korea's approach to North Korea is set to come more sharply into focus in the coming months as candidates gear up for next spring's presidential elections, where a successor to incumbent Moon Jae-in will be chosen. So what shapes South Korean attitudes towards North Korea? How united has the country been behind President Moon's approach of seeking reconciliation over the last few years? And what might change as the country enters a new period of leadership? Well, joining me to answer these questions and more, we have two distinguished guests. Dr. Gina Kim is a research fellow at the Korea Institute for Defense Analyses, and she specializes in North Asian security issues, and she's also advised the South Korean government in the past. And we also have with us again today, Ramon Pacheco Pardo. Ramon is the career chair at the Center for Security, Diplomacy and Strategy at the Brussels School of Governance. Indeed, we're once again partnering with CSDS for this podcast. The center is home to a rich expertise on Asia and is working to enhance understanding of Asia's security matters in Europe and to promote greater engagement between the two regions. Well, thank you to both of you for joining us today. Let's start with some background for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with domestic Korean politics. Ramon, could you tell us just quickly who are the main parties and how their approaches towards North Korea tend to differ? If you could just compare and contrast those to start us off. Absolutely. We have two main parties, a Liberal Party and a Conservative Party. They have changed names over the years. They have also been some mergers over the years. But right now, that would be the Democratic Party of Korea that has a majority in the National Assembly and is the party of the current president, Moon Jae-in. Then we also have the People Power Party, which is the main conservative party. Similarly to the liberals, the conservatives have changed names over time. There are also other minor parties on the liberal side, especially also on the conservative side. But these are the two main parties in the National Assembly and the candidates from these two parties. One of them will become president. In terms of their approach towards North Korea, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but you could argue that the liberals, they prioritize engagement over sanctions and pressure on North Korea, and the conservatives tend to prioritize pressure. Having said that, if you look at the policy of the Democratic Party of Korea that is currently in power, yes, engagement is the priority, but they continue to apply sanctions. And if you look at the previous conservative presidents, it is true that they prioritize maybe sanctions on North Korea, but at the same time, they were open to dialogue and there were some contacts, not at the highest level, but there were some contacts between the two Koreas. So would you say that there's generally more consensus between the parties over North Korea or is there more difference between the two? I guess you could argue that there is consensus that the ultimate goal should be denuclearization. No mainstream party is happy with a nuclear North Korea because at the end of the day, this is a threat to the country. You could argue there is also consensus in the idea that the two Koreas should move towards a reconciliation 
an eventual reunification in the future if possible, but at the very least reconciliation. And to an extent, you could argue that there is consensus that there shouldn't be instability in the Korean Peninsula, right? For example, what we saw in 2017 when President Trump was threatening a strike on North Korea. No party in South Korea wanted this. But there are differences, as I mentioned, in terms of tactics. And you could argue to an extent there are many in the conservative camp fundamentally they don't trust North Korea. And on the liberal side, maybe the belief is that you can actually trust North Korea to a certain extent. And there can be dialogue because North Korea may be willing to change. And on the conservative side, you don't always find this point of view. And Ramon, where does North Korea figure among the priorities for South Korean voters then? How much of an issue does it tend to be? How much of an issue will it likely be for the elections coming up next year? It's fair to say that it's not the main issue for South Korean voters. The economy is much more important, as I guess is everywhere across the world. Issues such as real estate, for example, the prices of apartments in Seoul has become a main issue. Jobs, which of course is related to economic growth, is always an important issue. So there are these social issues more related to South Korea itself that are more important for voters. Having said that, the candidates will have to spell out their position on North Korea. And North Korea may also try to insert itself in the campaign by backing one of the candidates, maybe conducting some metal tests. I'm not saying this is going to happen, but North Korea could potentially be tempted. We have seen in the past that voters in South Korea have become less responsive to North Korean provocations, right? It doesn't dominate the minds of voters as it would have done in the past. So even if North Korea tries to insert itself in the campaign with a post-COVID recovery hopefully taking place in South Korea, I would remind that economic issues will dominate the debate and also what voters will have in mind when they actually go to cast their ballots. Gina, let me bring you in. Under Moon Jae-in, there's clearly been a strong effort towards reconciliation with the North. We've seen plenty of drama over the last few years with Donald Trump. How popular do you think that Moon's approach has been among Korean voters? And how have views of his approach to North Korea changed as it's become less likely, arguably, that he's going to achieve meaningful success? Well, according to the recent public opinion poll, actually the number of uh, respondents who said hardline measures should be pursued to resolve the strained inter-Korean relations were higher than those who said conciliation measures should be pursued. But in my opinion, there has been no armed conflict between the two Koreas since 2018. So the people seem to be very much satisfied with the status quo right now. Recently, humanitarian aid to North Korea remains a topic of interest among many people. According to a survey conducted by the Korean Opinion Research Institute this year, 55% said that North Korea's participation in the regional health cooperation would help advance inter-Korean relations. And 75% even said that they were in favor of providing COVID-19 vaccine to North Korea after South Koreans have been successfully vaccinated. As the priority task to be pursued, the people selected persuade the international community including the U.S., to ease sanctions against North Korea. So on human rights and humanitarian issues, I think people still want to have good relations 
with North Korea. And how changeable do you think attitudes are in South Korea towards the North? Do they tend to ebb and flow or is there a fairly consistent public opinion towards North Korea and North Korean issues? Actually, people do believe that right now it is really hard to fix the security problem with North Korea. I think people are very much familiar with the status quo and we are very much accustomed to the news that North Korea is developing WMD and missiles. So I think most of the people just want the absence of major armed conflict, knowing that these can happen anytime. Do people fear that? Do people live with that fear or does it not really cross people's minds? I know these are big generalizations, but in, in general, do South Koreans sort of walk about fearing North Korea or do they just generally live with the fact that they're in this situation and just hope for the best that it's not going to deteriorate? I can't tell you about the recent poll actually conducted by the Institute for National Unification on that issue. Majority of people argue that now South Korea's military power is superior to North Korea's. This is a change because in 2019 and 2020, respondents rated North Korea's military power as superior to South Korea's. But now people believe that South Korea's military strength is more superior. And this is a very interesting point because this change cannot be understood solely by the public perception of North Korea's military capabilities. Because at the 8th Party Congress earlier this year, North Korea introduced new weapons that can be used technically on the Korean Peninsula and announced plans to develop short-range guided missiles and SLBM and cyber weapons and hypersonic weapons, etc. Nonetheless, the fact that the people began to view South Korea as superior in the military balance means that there were other external factors likely influenced the overall assessment about the significance of North Korea's threat. The recent recovery of ROG-US alliance and trust in ROG-US military cooperation and also South Korea's recent global status. In general, I think people just live with the fact that there is nuclear-armed North Korea, but people also gain some confidence in South Korea's security. Ramon, I wanted to ask how views in South Korea towards the North can differ between the generations in South Korea. Obviously, there's an older generation, many of whom probably still remember the war or who grew up in its aftermath. But do younger people today share the same kind of views towards North Korea? Is there a generational divide within the country? I think it is in the sense that we have a younger generation. Many of them were actually born during the democratic year. So I don't even remember the previous dictatorial years when maybe anti-communism was a more important part of South Korean ideology. And you have an older generation that, I mean, for good reason, because they lived through the Korean War and maybe the poverty that happened after the Korean War. And, for example, raids by North Korean commandos coming to South Korea to try to assassinate the president, right, as we saw in the 60s and 70s, right? So that generation, for good reason, is more fearful of North Korea. As an anecdote, 
yesterday I was taking a taxi with a, with a member of the old generation was the, the taxi driver, right? And he was telling me about how communism might take hold in South Korea, right? Depending who, who we vote next year, right? And there's this fear of any president even in South Korea who might be left-leaning, right, is as a communist, never mind the North Korean regime. And you have a younger generation that has a different worldview. And recently, for example, as China was saying before, they have seen how South Korea has been part of this G7 plus meeting, other international fora, of course, the G20, for example. So look, it's different. They might see North Korean not as a threat, but as a poorer cousin or, or, or brother that sometimes does strange things, right? This change in mindset is important because if they think about North Korea as part of their boat, they won't think about the threat of communism coming from North Korea. They will think more in terms of maybe the cost of reunification of the potential advantages and disadvantages of reunification for Korea as a single country, as I said, a very different mindset. What about the familial ties, though? I mean, presumably there are people, particularly older people, who remember relatives who are now in the north of the country, some of whom they may not have seen for years and years and years. But I guess the younger generation don't know other North Koreans, even members of their own family. Does that make a difference to attitudes? Well, in 2021, we are celebrating the 70th anniversary of the Korean War. But only one in seven teenagers know the war happened in 1950. This is what a recent survey found. This shows that history is being forgotten among the younger generation. And I think gradually the perception that unification is necessary because we are Koreans is slightly declining. The younger generation prefers, I think, peaceful coexistence to unification. And more and more people think that we can coexist peacefully without war with North Korea. And there is no need for unification. And the logic that unification should be done because of ethnicity as Koreans is becoming less persuasive to the younger generation. And the younger generation has a more, I think, rational and realistic view. Individualism prevails in the younger generation as well. And young people will think realistically about the individual benefits that can be obtained by unification and also the cost that must be borne by them. Absolutely. Let's broaden this out a little bit before we get into the nitty-gritty of current-day policy. There were some interesting opinion polls reported in South Korea earlier this year that showed how China has fallen in popularity among the population. In fact, it seems it's barely more popular than North Korea now. Of course, we know that Japan is pretty unpopular inside Korea these days as well. All of this begs a question as to who South Koreans see as their natural local ally in the region, if anyone. Gina, do you have any thoughts on that? In my opinion, alliance is formed between countries that share a threat perception, right? And balance of power is the most important reason for countries to create alliance system. And it is now an important time to balance the rise of China, and most of South Korea know this. So I will say the natural local ally, I think, will be Japan, because we have alliance with U.S., and we are talking about trilateral security cooperation between the U.S., South Korea, and Japan. 
South Korea has long been at odds with Japan on historical issues, but we have dealt with military and diplomatic issues separately. In 2019 and 2020, South Korea participated even more in multilateral joint military exercises along with Japan. That shows that South Korea thinks that Japan is a friendly nation who should work closely on security matters. And in turn, then, what's the state of current attitudes towards the US within South Korea? And have they changed since Joe Biden took over from Donald Trump as president? Yes, of course. The perception about the US have changed significantly. After the Biden administration took office, well, there were expectations that new changes can occur on the Korean Peninsula. And it is possible that the Biden administration will reach out to North Korea to discuss nuclear issues, along with inter-Korean relations. During the first summit, the leaders of both countries promised to upgrade the ROG-US alliance to the next level. So these are all good signs because President Trump, back then, focused primarily on money issues rather than the value of the alliance. And he paid little attention to issues that we are interested in. On the other hand, President Biden prioritized close communication with South Korea. And the U.S. confirmed that it respects the Panmunjom Declaration, which is the achievement of the Moon Jae-in government at the U.S.-South Korea summit in May. And we also confirmed that we will come up with concrete ways to cooperate on global partnership issues, including South Korea-U.S. vaccine global partnership, investment in semiconductor and eco-friendly batteries and emerging technologies, and many others. And Korea's perception about the U.S. changed dramatically in a positive way because of all these developments. Ramon, is that how you see it? I mean, do you think that South Korea and South Koreans more generally see the country as a natural ally of the U.S.? Or would they rather sort of be balancing between the U.S. and China? What's your perception here? Yes, I think if you look at South Koreans, the perception of the U.S. is clearly much more positive than the perception of China. I mean, there are many polls that show that over 80, 90 percent of South Koreans support the alliance. So here we're talking about liberals, conservatives, all generations that are supportive of the alliance with the U.S. and perceptions of China are pretty poor across the board. They used to be better maybe five, ten years ago, but it has deteriorated dramatically when it comes to voters. And you would assume that in a democracy, the leaders, the political parties have to somehow represent the views of the voters if they want to be elected. Even if this wasn't the case, we have seen that the current administration that for a while was talking about balancing the U.S. and China. President Moon was making this case, but since Biden took office, we have seen, frankly, a more assertive South Korea, talking about the Taiwan Strait, a freedom of navigation in the South China Sea, talking about human rights, calling for a new investigation of the origins of the pandemic. These are all issues that clearly are referring to China, even if China is not named. I don't see why the government would openly say, well, we're siding with the U.S. against China. 
But we even saw recently the leader of the Conservative Party, Lee Chun-sok, who said South Korea should be more openly critical of China on issues such as Hong Kong. It is true that he was criticized even by members of his own party that said, you know, you have to be more diplomatic when dealing with our big neighbor. But the fact that you have a Korean leader, however inexperienced and young he may be, because he's the youngest leader in a big political party in the recent history of Korea, the fact that the leader of one of the main parties will say this openly shows the type of attitudes that some South Koreans have towards China. And there is another aspect that Biden administration has been very clever in courting allies, and this includes South Korea. He has talked about cooperation. He has said that this Indo-Pacific strategy is not targeting anyone, but it's more about cooperation between different partners, even if we all know it is actually targeting China. So this has opened the door for the government and many South Korean politicians who might have been willing to side with the U.S., but they were not going to do that under Trump because of confrontational approach, to actually take the step to say, okay, there are several issues in which we clearly agree with the U.S., with Japan, with Europe, Canada, Australia. So let's talk openly about this. So we've talked a bit about the broader backdrop in South Korea, the broader sense of public opinion, and we've started to talk a bit about how that translates into policy. Going back to the straight situation between North and South Korea, it's obviously been one of the world's most difficult and intractable problems for so many years now. But let's talk hypotheticals for a moment. I'm interested in your perspective as somebody who's been involved as an academic and a policy advisor for a long time now. When it comes back to the fundamentals here, what is the vision within policymaking circles in South Korea as to how some eventual settlement with the North can come about? I mean, from an optimist point of view, what would a united Korea look like and how would it even happen? What is the sort of broad dream within South Korea, however unrealistic it might be in the current circumstances? Well, according to the opinion poll conducted every year by the Advisory Council for Democratic and Peaceful Unification, we find a response that unification is necessary, maintained an average of 75% from 2015 to 2021. However, the type of unification that people support differ, I think, from person to person. It would be desirable to be in a state where free movement is possible and economic and social exchange and cooperations are possible. And according to many documents and discussions at the highest level, We have a different opinion about how to unite the two Koreas because we prefer phased, step-by-step approach. Unification requires a model that fits the situation of the Korean Peninsula. And it is South Korea's official position that we should pursue peaceful coexistence with North Korea starting from people-to-people exchange and moving on to more cooperation in economic sectors. And then we can talk about integration. So there are actually three-step approach. To what extent have past reunifications elsewhere in the world, you think of East and West Germany after the Cold War or even the peace process in Northern Ireland, To what extent are they seen as 
models for what could happen in, in the Korean peninsula? Or is the situation just too different from anything that we've seen in the past, particularly given the nuclear weapons element? Well, actually, Korea is in a different situation. Because in order to have a peaceful unification, there are certain conditions to be met. For example, North Korea should not have nuclear capabilities. And in order to have people-to-people exchange and economic cooperation, South Koreans should freely travel North Korea. And they must be in a situation where they do not feel any security threat. North Korea must be free of any WMDs, and there should be military trust building and transparency that should be guaranteed between the two sides, and for economic cooperation between the two sides to be promoted, North Korea must accept a free market economy, and this requires a fundamental change in the North Korean system. So it'll take time. That's my point. The process of reconciliation and trust building, it is actually viewed as a natural process toward unification. People understand reconciliation should come first, and then we can talk about inter-Korean federation system, and then we can talk about completing a unified nation. So it'll take time, and it'll be quite different from other cases. And is there a sense that it has to take time partly because the economic cost of, you know, reuniting North and South Korea would be so large for South Korea? I mean, even West Germany struggled, I think still struggles in many ways with assimilating East Germany. So potentially, I guess it could be even harder in South Korea to assimilate the North Korean economy unless you do it over several years. Well, the cost of unification is studied in many ways. According to one study on German unification, the total amount of money flowing into East Germany from the West was estimated to be 1.7 trillion euros based on the current exchange rate. And in the case of the Korean Peninsula, more investment would be needed to boost the North Korean economy, which is far behind East Germany's. And South Korea cannot bear all the cost. And in my opinion, an alternative option would be sharing the cost altogether <laughs> among the countries concerned, especially those who have interest in development projects in the North. And in the past, in South Korea, the Lee Myung-bak administration held a large-scale fundraising campaign to raise funds for the unification of the Koreas. It was called unification jar donation because it started putting money in a jar engraved with peaceful unification. Actually, it raised about 1 billion Korean won in three years. But it was a political campaign, actually. The government budget for promoting the project was 1 billion won about. So it had some political and symbolic meaning. But a lot to be discussed between the regional countries, especially with Japan. North Korea has not received compensation from Japan to settle past history. So in the process of normalizing diplomatic relations, compensation for victims of colonial rule and forced labor, I think, will be put on the table. 
And the reason why North Korea is more critical than South Korea on Japan's past history can be seen as efforts to lay a stepping stone for future negotiations. So those who are concerned about the stability of the Korean Peninsula and those who are concerned about denuclearizing North Korea may have some interest in you know, cooperative threat reduction program altogether. Ramon, what's your sense of all of this? We've talked there about a potential peaceful reconciliation or reunification on the Korean Peninsula, but what's your sense of what contingencies have been made in Seoul for a sudden collapse of the Kim regime in Pyongyang? What scenario planning there is in place and what sort of scenarios they expect if that could happen? What's your sense from the people that you talk to of the readiness for that in Seoul? I'm not saying it's going to happen anytime soon, but it could happen at some point in the future. Yeah, that's a good point, right? I mean, it could happen at some point, so there has to be a scenario plan. It's interesting because you say there are a couple of big priorities. One of them is obviously the control over the nuclear weapons of North Korea. Who takes control of them? Is it going to be another faction in North Korea? Is China going to try to step in? You know, the PLA, is South Korea going to be able to do this, right? There's planning for South Korean armed forces to actually be able to go into North Korea and take control of the nuclear weapons. And of course, other weapons of mass destruction as well that we don't talk about, like biological weapons. The second component is what to do with the North Korean population. Is there going to be a massive flow of refugees towards China, as China itself thinks would happen? Are North Koreans going to try to reach South Korea? For example, there's these discussions about what about those North Koreans who have family members in South Korea? Are they simply going to try to cross the border in any way they can, or even the maritime border, to try to find their family members in South Korea? There's plan for this as well, because nobody would want millions of refugees suddenly making their way. That would be very difficult to manage. So there is clearly a scenario planning and there is also the long-term planning to make sure that if there is a collapse, Korea becomes a single country under a democratic regime that you don't see, for example, Chinese troops crossing the border and saying, well, you know what, we're actually going to stay here. Because China sometimes in the past has claimed that part of Korea, if not all of it, was Chinese territory. This scenario plan, of course, would involve cooperation between South Korea and the United States. And as China has said, more in the long term, the international community is stepping in to try to support the North Korean economy. China has mentioned Japan, I absolutely agree. We should also mention that Japanese businesses would actually be interested in potentially investing in North Korea. It's interesting sometimes talking to the Federation of Businesses in Japan about North Korea, and they actually want to have a presence if the North Korean economy would emerge with the South Korean economy. There are European companies that have looked at potentially you know, investing so clearly under a collapse scenario, you would see different countries interested and companies interested in this possibility. But in the short term, the two priorities that I mentioned, I think that the main ones. Gina, can you explain a bit about the military and defense aspects here? You've written in the past about how developments in China's military may be influencing the thinking in Seoul. Could you explain a bit about your thinking there and at the same time, maybe touch on what the feeling in South Korea and in government circles is about the reliability of the US as a military ally and partner? Well, first about China. South Koreans are very much concerned that China has focused on projecting military power overseas. And China is focusing its ground troops in Northeast Asia. And this means that PLA forces can quickly intervene in North Korean Asian affairs, including 
any events happening in the Korean Peninsula. This increases the possibility that South Korean forces would face a heavier burden of contending with the PLA. And China's military modernization is overwhelmingly focused on the maritime and air domains. And considering that North Sea Fleet is known to be tasked with leading the military response to a crisis on the Korean Peninsula, South Korea has legitimate concerns about China's increasing amphibious or expeditionary warfare capabilities. And in recent years, the PLA has increased the patrols near the Korean Peninsula. Chinese warship introduced lots of assets into South Korea's EEZ, and China's closing air and sea surveillance activities led to frequent violation of air defense identification zone without giving advance notice. And China's shift to focus on overseas threats and military modernization and competition with the U.S. pose a real challenge to South Korea. Regarding the broad-U.S. alliance, even though there is tension between the U.S. and China, and there is a growing concern about South Korea's position between the two, I'm very confident about the close cooperation between the two allies. In the case of local provocations, South Korea leads the operation and the U.S. provides support. But in the event of an all-out war, the two sides will jointly respond. And there is an institutionalized mechanism. First, we have a preset operational plan. And when armed conflict take place, the first thing that begins between the two allies is lots of communications at the multiple level. Everything is structured in such a way that all things are going to be implemented with the approval of the military leaders of both the countries. And rigorous decoupling in military cooperation is far from reality. But the question is how quickly reinforcement arrives when an armed conflict is prolonged and international support and rear support through the UNC becomes very much important. Especially the role of the UNC rear bases in Japan is very much important. So that's why, again, I emphasize trilateral cooperation. Ramon, just to round out our discussion today, can you throw it forward a little bit and just talk a little bit about the candidates that are emerging for president for the elections next spring? And maybe what's emerging about their approaches towards North Korea and whether we're going to see a big change as a new president comes in to take over from President Moon. We have seen over the last year and a half or so that on the liberal side, Yi Chemyong, who is the governor of Gyeonggi province, the province surrounding Seoul, he has to merge as the preferred candidate for liberal voters. So he has a good chance of winning the primary. There was a recent poll which said that 27% of voters would prefer E as their next president and well over 40% in a one-on-one confrontation with the main conservative candidate. In Akion, he's the second most popular liberal candidate and he used to be the prime minister serving under President Moon. He has slipped in the polls. It's interesting in the case of Yi Chemyong. We have Moon Chung-in who was a very well-known advisor to President Moon and to previous liberal presidents. He's actually advising Yi Chemyong, and I think he will very likely advise whoever is 
the liberal candidate. In the end, this suggests a degree of continuity on the South Korean side if a liberal president wins the election, a preference for engagement, especially if President Biden in the U.S. continues to emphasize that he's open to dialogue with North Korea. Each Myung is fair to say in domestic politics is probably even to the left of President Moon. So who knows if this would translate into North Korea policy being a little bit more leftist than President Moon, maybe being more open in pressing for inter-Korean economic projects or sanctions waiver, for example, which Moon obviously has been pressing for, but Moon has been very clear that he will continue to apply sanctions because that's what the international community has decided. On the conservative side, we have Yoon Seok-yeol, who actually used to be the prosecutor, very powerful post under President Moon, but then they had a fallout and he has emerged as the preferred conservative candidate for the time being, even though he's been sleeping a little bit. He went down to 19% in the latest poll in terms of support and in our head-to-head confrontation with E, the liberal candidate, he will be defeated quite convincingly if the elections took place today. Of course, we still have a few months to go. Yoon is being advised by Kim Sung-an, a very well-known conservative foreign policy thinker who in the past, for example, served under the conservative president Imun Bak in the foreign ministry as vice foreign minister. So we would assume that if he were going to be the candidate and then he were to win the election with the conservative party, it would be similar to this under Imun Bak. He actually talked about the potential for talks with North Korea, but also he was very clear that sanctions should be applied on North Korea because of the behavior. It also remains to see whether Yoon is actually a candidate for the Conservative Party, because there are three, four other potential candidates that could win the nomination for the Conservative Party. And I would say that not all agree on North Korea policy. Some of them have a tougher approach on North Korea. They are more critical. Some other, they don't have the same policy as the Liberal Party, but it's true that they say that it's important to have talks with North Korea in a way that maybe other conservative candidates are more wary. So I think that's where we are as of today. Fascinating. Well, it's going to be a very interesting election campaign, as they always are. But this time, given the backdrop that we've been talking about today, I think it's going to be particularly interesting. Thank you so much for giving us all of those insights. Thank you to Aaron Safir and Rebecca Bailey for producing this episode of Asia Matters. Thank you once again to Alexander Lestrange, who does the music for our show. You can get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. We have a Twitter handle at Asia Matters Pod. We have an email address, asiamatterspod at gmail.com. And we have a website, asiamatterspod.com. Join us once again. We're going to take a little bit of a break over the summer after this episode, but do join us again in the autumn. We'll have plenty of interesting podcasts lined up for then. For now, goodbye.